recap, if you haven't been with us over the last few weeks, you can always catch these sermons on archive. Week one, we talked about the pattern of judgment when God cleanses the earth. Now, there's been a pattern of this in the scripture. We called it judgment by darkness in the beginning. We, we mentioned the, the pattern of the judgment by exile. Sometimes it was from the Garden of Eden, and sometimes it was from the nation of Israel, but there's a pattern of judgment of exile. The judgment of water in the Noah story, and then the judgment by fire, which will come. That's one of the focal points of Zephaniah, the fire judgment that will come. In week number two, we discussed why God brings the judgment, not just that he does, but the why factor. Why does he do it? He is responding to idolatry that is not being changed, and he's responding to people who lead others into sin. He's responding to that by cleansing. We also mentioned the dangers of running to something for comfort before you run to the Lord for comfort. That is what we call an idol. Maybe you don't carve it out of stone, but you still run to it. That's still called an idol. We were also warned in week number two about the enemy's overall tactics of distraction, that he doesn't really care about idols. He knows they're not real. He knows they don't have any power. He just wants to distract us from anything. Anything but the Lord, he'd rather have you look at. It's a temptation by distraction. Week number three, it was called the decree. A decree of judgment had been pronounced, but along with the decree of judgment, the recipe for success and favor with God was also given. The recipe of repentance and humility. We were also warned of different kinds of idolatry, the kind you might not immediately think of, the idolatry of a city, of a country, of a culture, of a government. We put nothing above the Lord. We don't put our trust in anything else but the Lord. King David got that. Psalm 25, my hope is in you and you alone. All my days guide me in truth. Lord, we sang it tonight about hoping in the Lord. That brings us to today. And there's not only a pattern of judgment there's the understanding of why God sends cleansing judgment. There's a prescription of how to avoid this judgment in the Bible. But you know, there's also a recognition that the day of judgment in its finality will in fact come. It will in fact come. And, and you might say, well, how come we cannot repent enough as humanity? How come the earth cannot repent enough to cleanse itself from the fire judgment of the end of the age? How come we cannot do that? Because... When something is tainted by sin, though it can be redeemed, though it can be pronounced righteous through the blood of Yeshua, it will never be pronounced perfect. It had sin running through it, which is why the Bible describes the work of Yeshua, though it was good on earth, the eternal work of Yeshua was actually done in heaven in a temple not made with human hands. You see how important that was? That his sacrifice was not in an earthly temple that was made with human sin-stayed hands, but in the heavenly temple where there is no sin. That's why the earth must be cleansed through fire in the end. But we can stave off that judgment as long as God wants us to until his plan of action 
begins to unfold. We can stave off judgment in our own life individually through the prescription of repentance and humility. But even though there's a decree of judgment, Zephaniah continues to remind us of that. He also tells us that there is a predictable reaction to the pronouncement of judgment. A predictable reaction to the pronouncement of judgment. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Let's look at our opening verse, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 10 and 11. On that day, he's talking about the day of judgment, judgment by fire. On that day, declares the Lord, a cry will go up from the fish gate, wailing from the new quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, you who live in market district. All you merchants will be wiped out. All you trade with silver will be destroyed. And I thought that was, while it was easy to get the message of distress, those were some interesting reactions about wailing and crying and things being destroyed and things crashing down and businesses being closed. Life cannot continue as usual in that day, the day of the Lord. But what struck me as odd was the description. Why choose these places? A cry will go up from the fish gate. Is there something we missed about the fish gate? Is there something we need to know about the fish gate? It's not one of the more famous gates. Those of you that live in Jerusalem and you get a chance to go to the old city a lot, you know the fish gate, maybe it's not one of the most famous ones. So, so why here? Why didn't he say, a cry will go up from the Jaffa gate? You know, the real big, pretty square one that you can walk through right outside the really pretty new fancy mall. Some of our online viewers, they don't understand that concept. Yes, there is a big, fancy, rich mall right in front of the Jaffa gate. The fish gate, the new quarter. So I had to do a little digging. So I'm going to present to you some of the things that I think the Lord gave me when I asked that question. God, I get the judgment, but why the backdrop of the fish gate and the new quarter and the hills? What, what is all that about? Why did that mean anything to the listener? Well, the story begins with one of the kings of Judah whose name was Manasseh. And Manasseh had rebuilt the city of David. We pick up a story in 2 Chronicles 33, 14. We should have some of these references up on the board for you throughout the evening so you can write them down. But 2 Chronicles 33, 14 reads this way. Afterward, he, being King Manasseh, rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. So there you go. Now we have a little background about this fish gate thing, where it came from, who built it, who renovated it. It was King Manasseh of Judah. He rebuilt it. He fortified it. He raised the walls. He was active in doing something, but the verse starts with an important word, and the important word that that verse starts with is the word afterward. He, so something happened, and then 
afterward, King Manasseh did this to the city of David, the walls, the fish gate, etc. So something happened. So here goes our investigation. We figured out the fish gate problem. Now we got to figure out what happened before it. You follow my, my mental strategy here? Well, the Lord is so good to us, he gives us what happened. You see, King Manasseh was not a godly person. He wasn't following the ways of the Lord, and he was letting Israel run after idols. In fact, there were times where he even encouraged it and led people into idolatry. Sounds a lot like Zephaniah, doesn't it? The judgment description. And when Manasseh wouldn't listen to the prophet's words, when he wouldn't repent of his sin and he wouldn't change, the Lord sent the Assyrian army, and they captured him at that time. Remember, judgment by exile? Remember, there's a pattern. God does these things for us to pay attention. All the puzzle pieces fit pretty well. And Manasseh was taken. And even though I read from you, read for you from uh, 2 Chronicles 33, 14, I want you to go back two verses so you can see what happened before the afterwards. It says, when he was captured, when he was in exile, verse 12 and 13, in the king's distress, in his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and he humbled himself greatly before the, the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God, and then afterward, he builds the fish gate. You see what I'm saying? You get the backdrop of the story here, right? Zephaniah's jumping into it. He's using it as a backdrop because to the listener, the fish gate means something. It means that it is a symbol of repentance and revival. That's what it is. Because when Zephaniah is writing, he knows the background. He knows the story. It must have been a famous story in the land so that you only have to make a quick reference to it in modern culture and everybody knows what you're talking about. So he refers to it in the pronouncement of judgment as a point to get the people of Israel to listen to what Manasseh did. Because he got a decree of judgment. He was cleansed and exiled until he repented and he humbled himself. What did the verse say? Back to 14. I'm sorry, back to 13. 12 and 13. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God and he humbled himself. He sought the Lord. He humbled himself. And he followed the prescription that God gave for judgment. It was after following the prescription. We use that word afterward. Afterward, God brought him back to Jerusalem. He freed him. Then he gave his kingdom back to him. Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. And afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall, the city of David, the spring valley, the entrance to the fish gate, the hills, and all of those things. He followed the prescription the reward of humility was that he was brought back. He exercised his love for God by rebuilding these things. And if you were to follow the story a little bit further, it's, 
It's, it's a wonderful story in, in 2 Chronicles 33 there. Because what it leads to after this moment of repentance and humility and, and the Lord brings him back and he builds the city and the fish gate and all those things, the rest of the, the, the chapter goes on to tell you the rest of his life and what happened for the rest of his life. And for the rest of his life, he toured around Israel and he knocked down all of the idols, all of the statues, all of the false temples, the Asherah poles, any false god, any false priest. He did away with it all. So why is Zephaniah going to this as, as a backdrop? Well, you might remember from the weeks previous that Zephaniah keeps talking about judgment and calling for repentance and humility. And one of his patterns of writing, one of the Holy Spirit patterns through Zephaniah is to remind Israel of all of the past revivals. Remind them of the, of the leaders that repented. Remind them of the time when the country turned around, when we stopped worshiping idols. Remind them of those times, Zephaniah. Early in the chapter, remember, he's mentioning King Josiah, and we know about the revival that happened in his 26th year on the earth. But through Josiah's line, he follows the father and the grandfather, the great-grandfather. And why does he go all the way back to Hezekiah? Because he wanted to mention Hezekiah's revival as well. He's reminding Israel about what happens. If you go down this path, judgment, fire, exile, pain. But if you'll go down this path, restoration, freedom, healing, prosperity. And he's reminding them of the history of those that repented and led revival. That's why the backdrop of the fish gate, because they knew the story. They knew the story of King Manasseh and his revival. And Zephaniah is simply linking their memory to that. Let me give you our first key phrase tonight. The backdrop of salvation and revival is a constant reminder of what is possible even in the face of prophesied judgment. God always wants you to remember what's possible even if the pronouncement decree of judgment has been spoken. Remember, we talked last week about a window of time. The decree is given, but it hasn't been fulfilled yet. There's this window of time that God so graciously gives us to repent, to turn, to change. And God simply is reminding us of that. It is a constant reminder of what is possible in the face of prophesied judgment. And the way Zephaniah described the day of the Lord or the coming judgment was a lot of negative sounding things. There's crying, there's wailing, there's crashing, there's, there's hopelessness, there's businesses, and, and the cities are all crumbling down. And it reminded me of the consistency of God because when Yeshua talked about the same day, he used a very similar language set. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 24. Let me read a section here. It's about five or six verses. Matthew 24, starting in verse 12. And I want you to see the language that links together between Zephaniah and Yeshua. One of the things I closed with last week was the thought that, you know, Zephaniah could have been preached in the New Testament. It was so accurate. And then I realized that, in fact, he was preached in the New Testament. Sometimes it's a direct quote, but other times it's a concept that Yeshua or the apostles are using that they're getting from Zephaniah. 
Matthew 24, 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. You see the description here of people fleeing. Don't go back. Distress, panic, wailing, crying, loss, the immediacy of having to get out of whatever the problem is when judgment is pronounced. Zephaniah used very similar language when he was describing the reaction to judgment. And so now for us, friends, the stage has been set. Judgment has been pronounced. The reasons of judgment have been clearly given. A path to God's favor has also been explained. And a prediction of the reaction to judgment is now in view. But as we keep reading the book of Zephaniah, especially in chapter one, right here, the Holy Spirit puts a little surprise in front of us. Just when you thought you knew the formula and you got all of the pieces of the puzzle right and you said to yourself, praise God, that's not me. God has a gentle way of saying, please don't let the message zip right by you. Take a moment of introspection. Make sure it's not you kind of deal, you know. We do that at the Lord's Supper. We always take a moment. Make sure if we need to say anything to the Lord, make sure we take a moment and say it right now. Repentance, humility. Back in Zephaniah 1, our main text today, We're about to learn something that is equally concerning to God as idolaters and anyone who leads others into sin. This next thing is equally as concerning to God. Zephaniah 1 verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish those who are complacent who are like wine left in its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing either good or bad. You see, complacency is the theme of that verse. And notice that it's not just the idolaters and those that lead people into sin, it's now the complacent ones, the ones who knew better, the ones who had an opportunity to save some. Tonight's message title, Save Some. but those who have the opportunity to do good and we don't do it. The Bible speaks of that. To him who knows to do good, but he does not do it, to that person it is counted as sin. And Zephaniah is simply reminding us of this. What's interesting here is the Hebrew words that are chosen in this passage. 
hakofim. This idea here of complacency, what does it mean? Well, it comes from the root of kafa or lahakpi, words in Hebrew that we use to describe things that are frozen or things that have settled and they're not moving anymore or something that's congealed, right? Have you ever, you, you ever had a great meal on Shabbat? On Friday evening, you light the candles, you say the blessings, you have the friends over, you have this great meal, and when you clean up the dishes, you put it in a glass bowl. Come on, people, you're with me. Food is good. And you put it into the glass bowl, and you put it in the fridge, and sometime later, you're going to recook that or reheat that or look at it again, and when you take it out, you know that stuff that's on top. It's congealed. It's settled. It's no longer in that state of Goodness, it's frozen. That's the Hebrew word here. Any believer who has let their life become like that, frozen and congealed, settled and no longer moving, no longer having the river of life flowing through us, no longer reaching out to save some, to that person, he is counted as guilty of judgment as the idolater, and the one who leads others into sin. You see, that that should hit home with us believers in the house. Just when you thought you could sidestep the sermon, the Holy Spirit has a gentle way of saying, wait, wait, take another look. Be careful here. And as we continue to bridge the gap of the Testament so that you understand that God does not change the answer to our series, Yeshua talked about this. And it's not only that they did nothing, it's that they also believed that God would do nothing. You see, we don't want to make the mistake of others who mistaken God's patience for God's apathy. Joel chapter 2 verse 13 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The window. I keep telling you about the window. There's the pronouncement, then there's the window, and then later there's the judgment. But if, you will, if you'll rend your garments, repent, and live a life of humility in the window, in that moment, God will relent from sending calamity. 2 Peter verse three, chapter three, verse nine, something similar. 2 Peter 3, nine, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, when humanity is heading toward darkness, God expects that those who have the message of salvation those that can call for repentance and humility. He expects those to be active in sharing this message, even at their own peril. You say, yeah, but I'm, I'm working on my own life over here. I got my self-help books. I got my YouTube videos. I'm going to all the right classes. I'm working on me right now. I'm not saying stop working on you. That's part of, that's part of discipleship conforming to the image of Messiah, but not at the point of being complacent toward those who are dying and going to hell. It can't all be about us and our betterment. 
It has to also be, remember the commission, preach the gospel, make disciples, teach the truth, right? And when there's an opportunity, those that have the message are expected to share the message. You ever wondered how these patterns of God just always pop up because he wants, he wants to share his heart with you and if we didn't get it the first time, he repeats it. That's what we call a pattern. He's going to repeat it. For a long time, you know, not everybody has understood the, the parable of the talents. And they're like, man, God is so harsh. He, the poor guy just wanted to bury the talent and keep it safe. But in bearing the talent, in bearing the message, in covering the light and keeping it safe for yourself, you've missed the heart of God. The heart of God says, no, you have to, I stepped out for you, you have to step out for others. I brought the message to rescue you at my own peril. You need to bring the message even if it's at your own peril. I've never asked you to do something I didn't do. Do it like me. You say, oh God, I want to be like you. Go ahead. No, 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 God, not, not in that part. I was thinking about being like you in terms of knowing all of the scriptures and being very famous and touching people and they get healed. I mean, great, let's do all that too. But let's remember that the king of all creation came down to be a servant first, right? It wasn't the first coming where he rides in on the stallion and he's bronze-legged and fiery eyes and had this, this gorgeous head of white hair. I know I always focus on the hair. No, first he came as the servant. The creator of all things took off his robe, got down on his knees, washed his disciples' feet, and said, now go and do likewise. To those who know to do good but don't do it, it is sin. And Zephaniah says the exact same thing. It's amazing how clear God is in the scriptures. Can I be bold for just a moment? If you want to know truth, you'll find it. I know some of us get caught up in blogs and and responses on Facebook, and you can't believe people could even twist God's word the way they're twisting, and it just fires us up. It makes us so upset. My wife, mm, she gets fired up. If somebody takes the word out of context, oh, she can't stand it. I can hear it from the other room. You know, it's quiet and I know she's got her coffee over there and I'm, I'm in doing my study and I can hear, oh, come on. I'm like, oh, she must have read something. I know her, her, her little thumbs are about to fire off some response. You know, I, I go on a peek down the hall, see what kind of, see what kind of warfare we got going on down there. You know, he's oh, mm, mm. don't you dare say that about God. She said, Honey, how come that doesn't just make you so mad? I said, well, first of all, it does. But second of all, let me tell you a universal piece of truth. Anybody who actually wants the truth can find it. 
The people doing this stuff, writing these weird misinterpretations, they don't want the truth. What they're trying to do is they're trying to take their sin that they want to keep doing and defend it. Which is why they take the word of God out of context and they strip it from its Jewish roots and they, they start changing things in the story that no one ever meant to change. And they, they cherry pick something out of the word of God and they don't tell you the whole dynamic going on. If someone wants to know the truth, God's word is perfectly clear. Revelation chapter three. You see, we don't want to be sitting still, being frozen, being settled, and allow our love to grow cold. That makes us as guilty as the others. Revelation three fourteen, To the angel of the congregation in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot or cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Are we seeing some of this happen in our day? I think we certainly are. I bring you greetings today from some of the other King of Kings family. I got a chance to preach at two of our congregations yesterday, one in Ramat Gan with Pastor John, one in Tel Aviv in the afternoon with Pastor Jeremiah. They are on fire for Yeshua. On fire. You know, it's, it's interesting because cultural dynamics are different, but when I got done preaching, I was walking off I was thinking, hey, we did a good job. We wrapped it up. It felt good. And, he's, and he, Pastor Jeremiah says, can, can you preach some more? I thought, well, those are the end of my notes. Um, sure, I'll rapid fire something. And what the Lord gave me yesterday was, was this, this idea of in or out, on the bus or off the bus, hot or cold, it's, it's, it's not a percentage you get to choose. Say, listen, I, I feel, you know, I'm very grateful to the Lord right now. I'm giving him 85%. I mean, I'm really locked in there at 85%. He's done some good things for me. I'm going to go 90. I'm going to go 90% this week for the Lord. You know, God didn't do what I wanted. You know, I really wanted the promotion. My bank account is not what I want it to be. My, my relationships are just, I don't know. You know, God, I'm a little disappointed this week. I'm going 65. I'm going 65%. He never did that to you. 100%. Sitting there with Judas, knowing he was about to be betrayed, loved him, served him, taught him, ate meals with him. Yeshua only knows 100%. He doesn't know anything else. You're either in or out. And so that's, that was the bonus encore word I had yesterday. But I think it was apparently fitting for today. In or out, hot or cold, or I will spit you out of my mouth. We're seeing this happen today. We were, we were reminiscing about some of the things that have happened in the body of Messiah through this last year and a half, almost two years now since we've heard the word corona, right? And how the body of Messiah worldwide is significantly smaller, at least in its assembly, than before, significantly smaller. And we were reminiscing about 
the, some of the weaknesses that we've identified in the body of Messiah. And what I felt was from the Lord was, Corona didn't cause these weaknesses. It just exposed them. It just showed us, by the mercy of God, it showed us what was already cracking and weak so that we could correct it. And one of the things we need to correct universally is do not take the word of God out of context. Remember, there's a story behind it, there are prophecies behind it, and there are Jewish roots understandings behind every verse we read. King of Kings, let's lead the way in that. The world is going to look at Jerusalem. The word of the Lord goes forth from Jerusalem, from Zion. Let's be firm on that one. We mentioned just a few minutes ago, I'm going to start to kind of wind us down tonight, but our calling through all of this is to preach the gospel. You know, we don't get to just sit on the sidelines and do only self-help. That's not what we get to do. Because the Great Commission talks about preaching the gospel. And what I want to do is just remind you of the Great Commission, and I'm going to add one word to each piece. I'm not adding it to the scripture. I'm adding it for understanding. And what I like to do in those moments is I like to step to the side of the pulpit so you know that I'm adding something. So you don't think I'm mistakenly quoting a verse that's not there. So here's the Great Commission. Preach the gospel correctly. Not just preach the gospel, correctly. It needs to have the word repent in there. It needs to have the word turn, change, accountability, get with the body of Messiah. It needs to have all that going on when we preach the gospel. Preach the gospel correctly. The second part of the commission, make disciples intentionally, on purpose, like you meant to. Have a plan. Have some follow-up. Don't let people slip through your fingers. Keep after it. Be tenacious. There has to be a plan. Make disciples intentionally. And finally, teach the truth. Don't just teach. You don't get to just teach anything. You don't get to just preach anything. You teach the truth. You make disciples intentionally. You preach the truth and you preach the gospel correctly. That is a recipe for guaranteed success. How many times in life would you buy into something if it was guaranteed to succeed? The word of God guarantees a success. How do I know that? If, you, if we will preach the gospel correctly, make disciples intentionally, and teach the truth, the gates of hell will not prevail against the body of Messiah. Guaranteed success. We win. We know the end of the book anyway. Let me close with this verse from the book of Jude. Jude is the brother of Yeshua and James, one of the apostles, one of the 12 verse 17 through 23. It's our last verse tonight. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, 
Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Yeshua to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save some others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even clothing stained by corrupted flesh. That's why complacency is included in the guilt list, idolatry, leading people to sin, and complacency. To those who know to do good and do it not, it is sin. Complacency on the part of the believers is sin. That's why Zephaniah mentions it. That's why he says, and judgment is coming to the complacent, to the frozen, to the settled, to the congealed, the ones who are no longer letting the river of life flow through them. There's no room for complacency in the body of Messiah today, especially not in the times we're in. Darkness is rising, judgment's on the way, it's been decreed. We have guaranteed success in the Great Commission. And we have the opportunity to save some. The Bible says, snatch them right out of the fire. We are his ambassadors. We are his farmers, sowing seed, harvesting. We are his heralds that if we don't tell people about the salvation plan of Yeshua, who's going to tell them? Internet? Movies? Social media, the twisted, changed versions of the Bible that are coming out now? No. You. You're the one that carries the truth. You tell them. Closing phrase, we all have an important role to play in saving some by snatching them out of the fire. Stand with me, if you will. Let's take this personally tonight. Not every sermon do you want to necessarily take so personally, but this is one that you do. This is one that I do. Get in a position where you can receive from the Lord whatever body position that is to reflect your spirit. Let your body do what your spirit is doing. Make a, make a match. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you that you are the servant of all servants, that you have exampled 100% love and giving to us. Selflessness. We want to become like you more today than ever before. Forgive us of a spirit of idolatry where we run to anything else for comfort other than you. Forgive us for falling into the enemy's traps of distraction that he would have us look at anything but you. Forgive us for a spirit of complacency. We know we need to grow in lots of areas, but not at the expense of people dying and going to hell. God, would you help us to do a difficult thing tonight? Would you help us to balance those two things? We need to become a disciple while continuing to preach the gospel correctly. Help us to do it, God. It's beyond us. Holy Spirit, come inside of us. The one who lives in our temple already, let your voice be louder somehow. Forgive us. Let us make a change today. Let us become focused in a world that's losing focus, God. And Lord, let us intercede for the body around us, those that are weakening. The, the Bible is very clear that the love of many will grow cold, not just a few, 
the love of many. And Corona has already shown us some danger signs. It didn't cause the problem, it exposed the problem. We want to be working with you, God. Help us to do it today, those that are willing, those that are available. Commission us today in the name of Yeshua. We pray. Amen.